Some of you may have heard that there's a, another uh, prophecy, so-called, going around the internet right now, where another gentleman is predict, predicting the end of the world. He's chosen September 23rd uh, as the end of the world. Uh, the, and, and this is based upon some alignment of stars with the sun. And if you come across this story, let me just save you the time. Don't waste your time on it. The world is not going to end on September 23rd because the Bible tells us that there are certain things that must take place before the end comes. If you really want to be a person who's really keeping your eye on what we would call end times events or trends, you should look at the import of a certain geographical location called Jerusalem because really... Um, these events, you're going you're gonna to see tonight that Jesus is going to mention Jerusalem. We're going to see a temple mentioned. And I don't believe that you're going to see any of these events uh, take place until you see something rumbling about a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, just to remind us, we know that Israel was out of the land from 70 AD when Jerusalem fell to the Romans till uh, the late 1940s. And the Jewish people, which is, this is a miracle in and of itself, recaptured and reclaimed Jerusalem in 1967. Now, some of you were born before 1967. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands tonight. Some of you were born after 1967. I was born somewhere in that decade. I'll just say that to you. Okay? But this is what's intriguing about this. What's intriguing about this is the fact that in my lifetime, the Jewish people have recaptured their capital, a place where God said he would write his name forever. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Now, we know there's a lot of tension going on in the Middle East right now, and a lot of that tension does focus around uh, Jerusalem specifically, whether or not, for example, Jerusalem should be the capital of Israel. Some people wonder if Israel should even exist. And we know their neighbors, at least some of them, are saying that they should be pushed into the sea and annihilated. There are others who just say that, you know, Jerusalem should have no part in Israel's existence. But Israel, you know, one thing that did happen in, a, uh, in an attempt to really uh, garner peace, uh, they gave control of the Temple Mount and uh, that area in Jerusalem to the Arabs. That's why, by the way, that Israel has not rebuilt a temple there because they gave control as a gesture of peace. They didn't have to do it, but I believe that this is all part of God's sovereign plan. So don't worry about stories that come on the internet that Jesus Christ is coming back on September 23rd. Jesus said, no man knows what? The day or the hour. But I will tell you this. The Bible does indicate to us the season. It does give us markers or things to look for. And the things to look for are actually in these seals. War, famine, pestilence, death. Um, and here's another thing. The fifth seal, which if you look at Daniel 9.27, I'm not going to go there tonight, but I'll just tell you this. If you've studied the book of Daniel... The book of Daniel has a lot of last days prophecies. And here's basically what Daniel 9.27 says. It, it speaks of a 70th week. Seventy sevens have been decreed upon the people of Israel. This is what Daniel's told by the angelic visitor. Seventy sevens is literally how this works. 
So the last seven, there's uh, uh, 77s. The last seven has not, in, in our view, has not uh, come to fruition. It hasn't happened yet. We have a final seven, a final seven years. In the middle of that final seven, he will confirm a covenant, it says, and then he will uh, stop the sacrifice and offering. So this is one place where we look at prophecy in the book of Daniel. We say, okay, there is a link between what Daniel says and what Revelation says. There's going to be a final seven-year period known as Daniel's final week or 70th week. Seventy-sevens have been decreed, okay, decreed by God. The final seven, we believe, is ahead of us. And we believe it is recorded here both in Revelation 6 and referred to in Matthew 24. So this is what's going on. Now, the fifth seal, as Jesus is breaking the seals, I believe this is showing his sovereignty, his providential hand. I submitted to you last Wednesday that I do not believe the wrath of God has begun yet. One of my arguments for that that the wrath of God has not begun yet is found in verse 9 of Revelation 6. We're at the fifth seal. I'm going to make a case for you that the fifth seal is well into Daniel's 70th week. In fact, I believe we're at about the midpoint now, so three and a half years into that final seven. John says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. They were killed because of the word of God you could say the gospel or the truth of God's word, and because of the testimony which they had what? They maintained it. They, in other words, would not recant their belief in the word of God and their belief in Jesus Christ, even under threat of pains of death. Of course, we know that this is happening now in the Middle East, for example, and other places where people are told, if you will recant your faith in Jesus Christ, you can live or you can be freed from prison. And there are many Christians, even today at this very hour, who refused to recant their faith and ended up in prison or even worse. In the early years of the Christian church, around the, you know, of course it, it started happening right away, but if you look at before Constantine, before AD 325, the Council of Nicaea, and really a decree to not persecute Christians anymore, the Christian church faced uh, the lions in the Colosseum. They faced, you recant or you die, many martyrs, but even though that's true of the history of the church, that much blood has been spilled, there have been those who have made the case that in the last hundred years, there's been more martyrs than all the previous centuries combined. So if you're thinking about Christian persecution, and you could read the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's not stuff that we want to, you know, read, but the reality is there it is. There's Christian persecution happening all over the world. Jesus said when, you, uh, when we go through those first four uh, seals and riders, he says these are merely the beginning of what? Of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs is like the beginning of labor. It's going to intensify. So we can, we can uh, take that as there's going to be intensification of these things. 
Now here's what happens. These people will not recant their faith and they are slain because of it. I've submitted to you that this cannot be the wrath of God. God's wrath is not poured out on his bride or his people. God does not kill his people. Now some of you say, well, wait a minute. He's, he killed people in the Old Testament. He killed Ananias and Sapphira. That's true, Acts chapter 5. But only because they lied about the, the land, right? They lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. That's why God dealt with them in a harsh way. God does not kill his people who are faithfully refusing to recant their faith in God or in the gospel. Everybody with me? That is not the wrath of God. This is the fifth seal. We're well into Daniel's 70th week. So what is this then? Who would kill faithful Christians who refuse to recant their faith in Jesus Christ? Who's behind that? Either those who are anti-Christ, and we've already submitted that the first horse and rider is him, or Lucifer can be uh, you know, behind that. He was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. And we know that uh, you, you, know, you track the Bible and the history of Israel, for example, and what's happened, persecution from Egypt, persecution from Babylon, persecution from Medo-Persia, persecution from some remnants of the Greek Empire, perse persecution from Rome, persecution from the Ottoman Empire, persecution from Nazi Germany, you name it, there it is. This has been the story of God's people. And here, as we're in the fifth seal, it is true, Jesus breaks the seal, but it's showing ultimately his sovereignty or his providence. Underneath the altar, the altar here is one of the implements in the temple area. There's a, there's a copy of what is in heaven on earth. Moses was in some way shown what it looked like in heaven. And when you see the tabernacle and then later the Solomonic temple that was built, you know, David had it in his heart, but Solomon ends up building it. That reflects the throne room of heaven. And there's a couple altars there. There's a brazen altar or a bronze altar where sacrifices are made. There's an altar, a golden altar of incense where prayers are represented as incense goes up just outside the uh, Holy of Holies. Uh, there's a little debate on what underneath the altar actually means. Some people say it probably points to the brazen or bronze altar because what happened there is what? Sacrifice, the blood of the innocent. In this case, animals were killed and the blood was shed and that was a means of atonement, if you will, pointing to the ultimate Lamb of God. So some scholars say this altar here represents that brazen altar in some way because what has happened is there's martyrs there. Notice, John says, I saw the souls. Here's another reason. I don't believe that the resurrection and rapture have occurred yet is because they're in soul form. They're souls. I don't see a resurrection. I don't see a rapture yet. The two go together. Now let me just say, if you're new to all of this, oh, I'll take a breath for a second. <sighs> okay. There are about four major views on the timing of the rapture that are an in-house debate. And I'm going to reiterate this because I don't want to be misunderstood. There's a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture, a pre-wrath view, and a post-tribulation rapture. All four views are what we would call orthodox. They're accepted in the pale of orthodoxy. That is, uh, if you believe one of those views, we're going to say it's an acceptable view. There's good people who believe that. I mentioned to you at the end of last week's message, Chuck Smith held a pre-trib view. He's with the Lord right now. 
I have high respect for Chuck Smith. I don't hold the pre-trib view. Walter Martin, another one of my heroes, hold the, held the post-trib view. Uh, great respect for Walter Martin. I don't hold the post-trib view. There's other people who hold the mid-trib view. I'm sure that they're respectable individuals. I don't hold that view either. Some of you say, well, then what in the world do you hold, Pastor Michael? <laughs> I've explained to you that I hold a pre-wrath view. I believe the church will go through persecution, but not wrath. I want to make this very clear. Tribulation, but not the day of the Lord. And I've been trying to just explain that there is a distinction between the wrath of God and the persecution or the wrath of Satan. God's wrath is not for his church. So whenever that wrath commences, the church must be gone. Jesus used two illustrations to give us some understanding of this. He used Noah and Lot. Okay, we'll look at some of these as we go on a little bit. He said, the the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking. They were marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah went into the ark. And then the flood came and did what? And swept them all away. It will be just that way when the Son of Man comes. Now think about the illustration. Noah went into the ark. God shut the door and the flood came. The righteous is preserved. Then the judgment comes. Second illustration is Lot. Lot lives in Sodom. He's made some compromises. Uh, he's probably, maybe, potentially one of the leaders in the city. The angels go. They're going to pull Lot and his family out. His sons-in-law think he's joking. His wife and daughters are headed out of Sodom with him. The angels are basically pulling them out of town. We can't destroy this place until you're gone. Lot's wife, what, what does she do? She looks back and she's consumed. She becomes a pillar of salt. Now, we don't know if that's literally what happened or if she was swept up in the judgment or it was just that God dealt with her because they were told, don't look back. So Lot and his daughters are pulled out of Sodom as what's happening. Fire and brimstone are coming down. That's why one view is that she got swept up in the judgment. So this is what I've affectionately called boom, boom eschatology. Okay, here's how I think it works. You take this for what it's worth and then you wrestle with the scriptures. I believe here's what's going to happen. The righteous are going to be rescued and judgment is going to come. And I believe it's going to be that close. Righteous out, judgment down. But I also think that persecution will be happening prior to the day of the Lord. And that, that's why it will partially be about rescue of God's people. We know that Lot, for example, and the angels even were experiencing persecution in the town. Remember what the townspeople were trying to do? And Noah was a preacher of righteousness and there's at least extra biblical literature that says people were mocking him up and down, back and forth. So this is what I think the timing looks like. Now, um, notice what happens. This is, this is just kind of giving me another layer of evidence here for, for my personal view. Notice verse 10. And they, that is these martyrs, 6.10, cried out with a loud voice. And they said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from doing what? Judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. 
Now the martyrs in soul form underneath the altar ask a question. When are you going to judge the earth? When are you going to repay these people for killing your people, for martyring your saints? How long, O Lord, until you judge? Now, I take that as judgment has not begun yet. God's wrath has not been poured out on the unbelieving world yet. The question from the martyrs is, how long? Until you avenge us, until you judge those who live on the earth, those who hate your people and destroy your people. And notice they are told, each, uh, there was given to each of them a white robe. They were told that they should rest for a little while longer. So notice it's a little while longer. Don't know the exact time, but I think we have an idea because we're in that last seven years. Until the number of their fellow servants and the bre their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be what? Completed also. So there is a number on these martyrs. God knows what the number is. I don't know why there's a number and why this has to happen. That's outside of my understanding. But God is sovereign. Now, in Matthew 24, as we've been looking, we've been going back and forth, we have tracked so far that the first... Um, five seals, or at least four, we'll pick up the fifth one here, have been in perfect order. So taking Revelation 6 with Matthew 24, we've seen war, famine, pestilence, and then Jesus say in Matthew 24, 8, that these are the beginning of the, of the birth pangs. So we've seen really the first uh, four seals, and then notice what happens in verse 9 of Matthew 24. He says, then, then they will deliver you to what? Tribulation. There's the Greek word flipsis. It means pressure, trouble. It can be translated persecution. And they will do what? They will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. That's the name of Jesus. Seems like Jesus is saying worldwide persecution, all nations. And at that time, many will fall away. The Greek word here, fall away, Single Greek word is scandalizo. They will be scandalized uh, or they will apostatize and they will deliver up one another and they will hate one another. Now, this is not the most pleasant uh, content, I know, but here's what we got. Revelation 6 says the fifth seal is what? Martyrs underneath the altar wouldn't recant their faith, saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And Jesus, as he's been going through his chronology, says the next thing that will happen is that they will deliver you to tribulation. See the word tribulation? That's the famous word, right? The tribulation period. What is the tribulation period? And who is it for? Well, in Matthew 24, Jesus says they will deliver you. Now, we all want to know who the you is, right? <laughs> that, that's, that's a big question. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a parallel passage, Mark 13. Just flip over there, the next book to your right. Mark 13. Here's what Jesus says. It's the same sermon, same questions that were asked by the apostles. And Jesus says these words. He says, be on your guard, Mark 13, 9. Be, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, 
Do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death, a father, his child, a ch uh, and children will rise up against parents. This is sobering. And have them put to death. My goodness. This is a, this is a dark hour. Uh, Jesus is saying it from the lips of our Lord, right? Explaining what's going to happen in these dark times. In Luke 21, it, which is Luke's version of the same uh, content. Luke 21, next book to your right. Here's what is recorded. Luke 21, 16 says, You will be delivered. Uh, you will be delivered up even by parents. 21, 16 of Luke. And, and uh, brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all on account of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, Jesus says hang in there because ultimately all men, the worst that man could do to you is what? Kill your body. But he can't kill your soul. So Jesus says not a, head of your head, uh, uh, not a hair of your head will perish. That's good news for some of us in the room who have a little less. But we won't go there tonight. <laughs> Revelation 6. Go back to Revelation 6 if you will. So the martyrs cry out. They say, how long, Lord? How long until you avenge us? Let me just ask you. I know it's some sobering comment, content, but let me ask you. Is there anything worth dying for? I mean, we're all going to die. We, we, we understand that. Unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, we're, we're going to breathe our last. Is there anything worth dying for? You know, some, some people, you know, are, are desperate and take their own lives. Um, some people end up on their deathbed with all kinds of regrets. Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be a hard time for my people, uh, but don't, don't fret because I'm going to take care of you ultimately. I'm going to bring you into heaven, into my Father's house. Now, in Revelation 6, we're going to move towards the uh, culmination of things. So here's what happens. This is verse 12, Revelation 6. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal. Now, there's only seven. We're at the sixth, and we're not going to see the seventh seal uh, in, until chapter 8. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were removed out of their places. Now, this is the sixth seal and this is going to be the sign that precedes the seventh seal, which is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before that, I want to show you one more thing in Matthew 24 about what Jesus says happens in between. So go back to Matthew 24. Just keep holding your place in Matthew 24 and check out what he says now. So he's talking about uh, people falling away. He's talking about many being misled. People's love's going to grow cold. He's talking about hanging in there and enduring till the end, uh, 24, 13. He talks about the gospel going out. 
uh, to the whole world as a witness. And then he says these words. Therefore, Jesus preaching, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. And then notice in parentheses, let the reader understand. Now we're reading it right now, so we certainly want to understand. Jesus says, when you see what Daniel talked about, the abomination of desolation, which Daniel sp spoke about, Daniel prophetically spoke about, where is, where is it standing? In what? The holy place. And then it says, let the reader understand. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out, of the, out that are in the house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are with child, to those who nurse babes in those days. He pronounces a woe. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter, tough time to travel, or on the Sabbath, Sabbath regulations. For then, when these things are occurring, there will be what? Great tribulation, megas flipsos, great trouble, great persecution, great pressure, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days of great tribulation had been cut short, the Greek word here literally means amputated, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days, remember, of great tribulation shall be cut short. Now Jesus tells us, he gives us a marker. He says there is going to be something that happens that is going to indicate this shift from tribulation to great tribulation. From the beginning of birth pangs to the intensifying of birth pangs. To it getting worse and worse and worse. And what this will be is when you see, says Jesus, the abomination that causes desolation. Now, if I asked you to define the word abomination, what would you say? Anything that you find abominable is what? Detestable. Oftentimes, what is abominable is classified in the uh, category of idolatry. When something is abominable to God, it is idolatrous and everything that goes with idolatry. There's going to be some sort of abomination that occurs in the holy place that brings desolation. What's desolation? If I asked you to define desolation, what would you say? Desolation means things get wiped out or uh, to be desolate also speaks of emptiness. It can speak of a combination of destruction and emptiness. So something is going to occur uh, in this holy place that brings the abomination that is abominable and with it desolation. Now in the book of Luke, to your right, Luke 21, Jesus gives us another marker. So here's two markers that I think are going to signal and spark the Great Tribulation. One, this Antichrist uh, or an image of the Antichrist, something abominable is going to happen in the holy place, which would indicate that we'd have to have what there? A temple. That's why end times uh, scholars and theologians say there's got to be a rebuilt temple for this to be a future event. And then there's a second marker. Here's what Jesus says. Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her what? Her desolation is at hand. Then notice the chronology. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city, Jerusalem, because these are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Here's his woe again. Woe to those who are with child, to those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Go back and listen to my message from Luke 21. I think it kind of goes back and forth here between the times of the apostles and the last days. But notice what happens now. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars upon the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now Jesus describes these times as well. And there's two things that I have gleaned from just taking Scripture with Scripture. One, there's going to be some sort of abominable a thing that occurs in the temple or the holy place. Two, you're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, would if, if you went home tonight and turned on Fox News, would it surprise any of you to see armies surrounding Jerusalem? I don't think so. I mean, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, frankly. Because we know there's been so much tension, so many U.S. presidents trying to bring peace to the Middle East. How well are we doing? Not so good. We have tension in the region. We have people fighting over Jerusalem, fighting over the holy place and uh, the, the, the places that, at least that they believe are the original and so forth. Now, I won't go there, but I'll tell you, we've already looked at this. 2 Thessalonians 2, um, verses 1 through 4, Paul says the same thing. He says, the day of the Lord is not going to come until a couple things happen. There's going to be an apostasy. The man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. And then he says, who opposes 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as what? Being God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Jesus, John in Revelation and Paul all are telling us of the same event. There's a symmetry, if you will, between them. And there's going to be a time of intense difficulty, pressure, or the people of God. And Daniel tells us something that's interesting. Go to the book of Daniel for a moment. Daniel 12. We're going to take scripture with scripture. By the way, this is how you learn your Bible. You go to the different books. You compare scripture with scripture. Let scripture give you the interpretation. Daniel 12. As you turn there, let me just share with you Jeremiah 30 verse 7. It says, Alas, for the day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Now, whose trouble is it? Is it only Jacob's? Is it only Israel's? Is it a combination of Israel and the church? The church is grafted into Israel. These are some questions that we wrestle with. Look at Daniel 12, look at verse 1. Now, at that time, Michael, one of my favorite characters in all the Bible, <laughs> Daniel 12, 1, he has an awesome name. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, that would be Israel, 
Michael has a special relationship with Israel. Michael is one of the archangels we know about in the Bible. And he stands guard over the sons of Israel or the people of Israel. At that time, Michael will arise. The Hebrew word is M-A-A-D. It's amad. It can mean to stand still, to stop, or to cease. If we're correct here, what this means is at this time, Michael will cease, stop, stand still. Literally, you could translate it this way. Step out of the middle. What does that mean? It may mean that Michael will stop his activity of guarding Israel. Now, notice what happens. Right after it says, Michael will amad, and there will be a time of what? Distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation, the nation of Israel, until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is founded, found written in the book will be what? They will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, the dead, will what? They will awake, here's a resurrection, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Would you notice two resurrections are mentioned here in verse 2. One is to everlasting life. The other is to disgrace and what? Everlasting contempt. Now I know we're all struggling with the concept. Is there an eternal judgment on people? Does the Bible indicate an everlasting place of punishment. Here's yet another scripture. It says one group goes to everlasting life. I sure hope that's eternal everlasting. And another group goes to what? Everlasting contempt. This is the sobering reality of what the Bible teaches about life beyond this life, if you will. And so here is how it's been laid out. This time of great tribulation. Jesus talks about it. Unless these days were cut short, no flesh would survive. And then back to Matthew 24 as we continue to follow Jesus' words. We're all over the board, I know, but we're trying to just kind of fit the pieces together. Matthew 24, and uh, Jesus says, now those days are going to be cut short, but here's what's going to happen. So imagine that there's a group of people that heeded the warnings. They got out of town. They fled. They saw the abomination of desolation. They, they boogied out of town. There are many scholars that believe that the, uh, the people who heed the warning will run off to modern-day Jordan to the area of Petra. Uh, this is kind of linking some other scriptures together. The city of Petra, known as the Red Rock City, is in modern-day Jordan. Uh, if you watched Indiana Jones, the third movie you saw, uh, the city. How many of you have been to Jordan, by the way? Anybody been to Petra? You've been there, Lurie. Pretty cool? Yeah. So um, that's one possibility that they go there and are supernaturally protected. I think there was a question at the end of last week's study. You know, how do you think this is going to unfold? I believe that the trouble will center itself in Jerusalem, as we've seen, and, but then radiate out from Jerusalem. And we can see that there's going to be worldwide implications to what goes on as we continue to study the book. But Jesus says these words, Matthew 24, 23. He says, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, don't believe them. Don't believe him. Uh, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and what will they do? 
They will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. At this time, you're going to have false Christ, false prophets, people who are saying, Jesus has appeared. He's out in the wilderness. Uh, he's over here. They're even going to be able to do great signs. We were at a men's Bible study, and one of the guys that studies eschatology said, can you imagine how tempting this would be? Let's say that you're a believer. Times are difficult. Maybe you're in hiding. And you hear reports that Jesus has appeared again. And to confirm it, people are doing great signs and wonders. And this gentleman looked at me and said, Pastor Michael, I've never seen you do a miracle. And he's right. Imagine if, imagine if someone's doing great signs and wonders. Would you be in awe of it? Would, would you be tempted to believe that they were from God? But Jesus says, even with that, don't believe it. If possible, this could even mislead who? 24, the elect, the chosen of God. Behold, Jesus says, here's the purpose of this prophecy. I've told you what? I've told you in advance. That's the nature, nature of predictive prophecy, in advance. If therefore they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go forth. If they say he's in the, in the inner rooms of the secret chambers, perhaps in the temple, don't believe it. Could be a reference to, oh, he's back in the temple. Everything's cool now. Jesus says these words, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming, this, this is the parousia, the second coming, singular, coming of the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be. It'll be just like a lightning strike that goes from the east and flashes even to the west. How many of you have seen pictures of these incredible lightning strikes, man? A streak across the sky and you're just like, wow, that is awesome. Well, Jesus says, my second coming will be similar to that. In other words, you won't be able to miss it. Nobody will be saying, did Jesus come? I don't know. Did Jesus come? I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be a massive Light show. We've sat in uh, stadiums before when they dim the lights and they start to shoot the fireworks off. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, boom, 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 boom. Oh. Right? And they're pretty impressive. You ain't seen nothing yet, baby. Because when Jesus comes, the natural lights are going off. God can just go like this. And Jesus is coming. And he says, you won't miss it. It'll be like a lightning strike. Here's another idiom. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be. This is like saying, it'll be as plain as the nose on your face. Here's the illustration. If you see vultures flying up above, what do you have a pretty good idea of? Something is either dying or dead below. Jesus says, that's how it's going to be. It'll be very obvious. It will not be that you'll have to wonder if he showed up at a, in a secret room somewhere or uh, in a back alley somewhere or out in the wilderness where you have to go to the top of the mountain and put on a white robe and meet him. None of that. When Jesus comes, everybody's going to know. Every eye, Revelation 1-7, will see him and they will mourn, right? I believe some will be rejoicing and some will be mourning. Now, in Revelation 6, Jesus has given us the sign. A book came out called The Sign, and this is what it indicates. It's, this is the marker that the day of the Lord is about to come or is commencing. It's the sixth seal, Revelation 6, 12. There's a great earthquake, a sign of divine visitation like Mount Sinai. 
The sun gets darkened. It becomes black like sackcloth 612, made of hair. The whole moon becomes like blood. We've heard the idea of a blood moon in recent past. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. I don't believe that's literally falling, but I believe it's another indication of darkness as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Now, I want to show you a parallel passage. Go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. This is another day of the Lord section, Isaiah. And this is Isaiah telling us about the day of the Lord. He's going to give us some similar language. Look at Isaiah 13 and pick it up. At verse, oh, there's so much good stuff here. Six, wail for the day of the Lord is near. 13.6 Isaiah, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Isaiah 13.8, pains and anguish will take hold of them. The, they will ride like a woman in labor. Interesting. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Just write Indiana Jones, the first movie in your margin. <laughs> Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he, God, will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. That's why I think it's probably having to do with light here. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus, God says, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make a mortal man scarcer than pure gold and, make, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken from its place. And the fury of the Lord in the day, at the fury of the Lord in the day of his burning anger. Now back to Revelation 6. You came for a study of the book of Revelation? Here you go. <laughs> this, is, this is what the Bible's telling us is going to happen. Tribulation, and then this sign that the wrath of God is coming or about to commence. In verse 14 of Revelation 6, it says, The sky will split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island will be moved out of their places. Do you think anybody will be wondering what's going on? I don't think so. I think people will know that the God who made everything, the world and everything in it, the earth, who told the sea, you can only go that far, who placed the sun where it is, who made every star and calls them all by name, will come to deal out retribution. And it's a wonder he hasn't already. He flooded the world with a flood, you know, a long time ago. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3, that when the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be the fire of the Lord. But there's been a long time in between. And what's been the purpose of that long time? Because God is not willing that any perish, but what? All come to repentance. But this is the time of divine visitation. The sky is split apart like a scroll. This age is rolled up and it's going to conclude. Uh, oh, so many good scriptures. Okay. One, one more in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 34. <laughs> Isaiah 34. Again, taking scripture with scripture, Isaiah 34. I want to show you um, how he records similar language here. He says, 
Draw near, 34, 1 of Isaiah. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, the world and all that springs from it. 34, 2 Isaiah. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them and has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out. Their corpses will give off their stench. The mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven will wear away. And the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. This world, this age, the heavens and the earth, um, all that goes with this age, if you, if you return to Matthew 24, is going to be rolled up. It's going to be summed up. God is going to make new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And he's going to do a makeover of everything. And it's going to be tied uh, to his resurrection. We're back in Matthew 24. Tied to, I'm, so, I'm sorry, to his second coming and the resurrection of God's people. The resurrection and the rapture. Now, here's what happens. Now, we've been following the seals. We've been seeing if you know, there's a symmetry. In Matthew 24, verse 29, here's what Jesus says. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, what does he say? The sun will be what? Darkened. The moon will not give its light. We have seen it in Isaiah. We've, we can see this in the book of Joel. We've seen it in Revelation. We saw it in Luke. And now we see it in Matthew. The sixth seal, I believe Jesus is talking about, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Here's the sign, the sixth seal, you can write it in your margin. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky as the natural lights have gone out. And then all the tribes of the earth will do what? They will mourn and they will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming on the clouds, clouds of glory, of the sky with power and great glory. And he, when he comes, after the sixth seal sign of the darkening of everything, and he will send forth his angels with what? A great trumpet. You can see the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4 connected to the rapture. A great trumpet. And they, the angels, will gather together who? His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. What's that sound like? It sounds like we've got all the persecution and tribulation. It sounds like God has given the sign to the world, which is in Old and New Testament uh, predictions. Then Jesus makes an entrance, but before wrath comes, the elect are swept out like Noah, like Lot, the people of the world have no question. They're mourning over his appearance. They see him. And then the elect are swept into the presence of Almighty God. Now you could later on for your own study, keep reading that chapter and you'll see the examples of Noah given here. Noah and then Lot is given in uh, the book of Luke. Now we'll finish it in Revelation 6. And I'll give you a kind of a, a big picture view as we we'll sum up tonight. So back to Revelation 6. And then look at what happens next. So it says, Revelation 6, the kings of the earth 
And the great men, verse 15, Revelation 6, and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, what did they do? Did they say, oh, finally, now I can have a conversation with him. Finally, I can put all my gripes on the table. Finally, mono e mono, me and God, we're going to have a conversation. Oh, no. Kings, great men, commanders, rich, strong, slave, free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. We're all the way back to Revelation 5. Him who sits on the throne, he's got the scroll. And from the wrath of who? Of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. You could say is about to commence. And who is able to stand? What does the rebellious world do when they see the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? They say, I'm going to try to find a hiding spot, almost like Adam and Eve did after they sinned against God. They tried to hide from God. You can't hide from God. Where can I go from your presence, O Lord? Where can I flee from your spirit? Nowhere you can go. And so, but they try to hide. And in fact, they say, please let a rock fall on me because I don't want to face him, which indicates to me that there's the brilliant light of God. You know, the Bible says that God dwells in what? Unapproachable light. God is light. Our God is a consuming fire. This is almost like the response at Sinai when the people see God and it looks like a fire on top of Sinai and they say to Moses, you go talk to him and let us know what he says. <laughs> Moses says, I was full of fear and trembling in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's also recorded, in, I believe, in Hebrews. This day of wrath has come and who is able to stand? This day is coming. It's a promise that we have. Some insightful words by James Hamilton. He says, Everything people sell their souls to gain fails them when the great day comes. Politicians sacrifice their integrity to get elected, but their office won't help them when Jesus comes. The rich, the rich trade life for money. The powerful exchange loving relationships to gain influence. And people everywhere prefer enhancing their image to building character and learning truth. But when God knocks the mountains off their roots and yanks the earth's surface flat, when he rolls up the scroll of the sky, nothing that people forsook him to gain, forsook him to gain will protect them from his wrath. How will you fare before the wrath of God? Do you think status or influence or wealth or greatness is going to help you on that day? There is only one shelter from the wrath of God on that day, the shelter of the cross of Jesus Christ. Only those who believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sins, that he rose to conquer sin and death, only those who trust Jesus will be sheltered by Jesus from divine wrath on that day. You take a look at the world. You take a look at what people do for 60 or 80 years of fame and fortune. They'll leave marriages. They'll sell their souls to the devil. And for what? Especially on this great day, when you see everybody who thought that they were so great and so strong asking rocks to fall on them. In Isaiah chapter 2, day of the Lord imagery again, just listen to it. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased 
The lofty, uh, loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Enter the rock and hide, Isaiah 2, 10 through 12. All the Bible writers, at least that I've, the ones I've quoted tonight and many more, I could give you from Ezekiel and other places, the book of Joel, are uh, talking about these happenings. Now you say, okay, well, you said you would give us a big picture. Here's what I think happens. And we'll end with this tonight. Um, look at Revelation 7. There's two things that happen in Revelation 7. And we'll, this is just a preview. One, there is a ceiling of how many people? 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, two, there's this group of people that appear in heaven. They're uh, clothed in white robes. They come out of the Great Tribulation. We'll, we'll study this more, but there's a ceiling of the 144,000. This huge, uncountable group appears in heaven, and there's a dialogue about where they came from and so forth. And then, after Revelation 7, look at Revelation 8:1. And when he broke what? The seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. The smoke of the incense with their prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand, and the angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then we're going to see judgment, 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 judgment. Here's my point. I think what you have is the sign. Jesus is coming. The cosmic sign. All of a sudden, there's a ceiling of 144,000 for ownership and protection. A huge group of people appears in heaven. All of a sudden, where are they from? From every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Where did they come from? Out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. And then there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. The seventh seal is broken. And then what starts to happen? Judgment, judgment, judgment. So I believe what we have is Revelation 6, the sixth seal is broken. Revelation 7, God, there's 144,000 Jews sealed. The church is in heaven, raptured out of the, uh, all that's going on, and then the judgment falls. That is the pre-wrath view. Make sense? Just nod. Humor me. <laughs> so that's how the view unfolds. Now, I'll say this to you. I hope I'm wrong. Here's why. I'd prefer not to be here for these events. <laughs> can, I, can I get a witness? I have no martyr's complex. And for those of you who are still pre-tribbers, I love you. <laughs> and I hope you're right. Because this is going to be a tough time, right? And as we go on in the book, there's going to be stuff where, you know, taking the mark and the mark of the beast, and we'll get into all this stuff, and it's, and, it, and it's pretty heavy stuff. But here's what I know. Our champion is coming. <laughs> and this will really only matter to that last generation. We may be that generation. We may not be. But we know who writes the last chapter. 
Father, we are grateful for your word. These, uh, these issues about your judgment and uh, what's going to happen are sobering. These are not our favorite subjects. We all would admit it, but they are certainly intriguing. And you told us in advance because you wanted us to know. Let the reader understand. And so, Father, whatever generation this may happen, I pray. You know, we're told in, in other places like Second Peter, the reason that you haven't judged yet. You're not slow, as some people count slowness, but you're not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. As radical as this is, you've been waiting. You've you fixed a date to make it possible that as many as would come would come. And I'm grateful to be in a room with many believers tonight. Those who may listen to this later uh, are believers or potential believers and and I pray that if you're not a believer and you're hearing my voice right now, that you will run to Jesus. He took God's wrath at the cross so you wouldn't have to face his wrath. He took the fury of God's punishment. The sky grew dark. Think about the connections. The earth shook. Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was taking the judgment of Almighty God, of the Father, so that we wouldn't have to. God loves you that much. And that's why we're in the kingdom tonight, if we're believers. But if you're not a believer, run to Jesus. Understand what he did for you at the cross. You can't be righteous enough. You can't be good enough, but Jesus is. And his perfect life and sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection is enough to save you. That's the price of redemption, but you must receive it. You must say, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my redeemer. Please apply your finished work, your blood to my life. Please make me your child. I repent of my sin and I put my full trust in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious and so patient with us. And I pray that you will bless these sweet saints, encourage them in their faith, and help us to be about your business until you come or we go to be with you in Jesus' name. Amen.